Yeah, hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Today's guest is a true entrepreneur. Basically, he's never even had a job. He was a former professional stand-up comic, an award-winning screenwriter, Shark Tank contestant, and also won the fastest master sprinters in the United States over 55. He has turned down many different buyout offers, and he's still looking for the right one because he believes in true partnerships, and he thinks there's no best practices in success. Let's get started and welcome Stephen Sashin of Zero Shoes. Why don't we start? Uh, we have three questions that we always ask, and then we'll kind of of someone coming back on the show, and then we'll kind of see where the rest of the the conversation takes us. So, all right, tell us a bit about what's happened since the last time you've been on the show. Not much. Yeah, I heard something. You, you were mentioning something a little, something about change. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot. Obviously, yeah. you know, COVID's a whole other story. Yes. We don't even get it, have to get into that. Um, but the 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 big thing that happened for us uh, just recently is we brought on a private equity partner. They took a minority position in our company and brought in not only some capital to help us really move forward. We've been a bootstrap company since we started. Uh, we started with, you know, a handful of credit cards and everything we've done has been just bootstrap. Other than we did an equity crowdfunding raise back in 2017 and raised a little over a million dollars then. But this is not not only real money that we can actually use so that we don't keep running out of inventory every year, which we have, but also this private equity group has a team of people. It's a growth fund that we're part of, and they're committed to helping us grow the business. And the people, the reason that we that we partnered with them is they have some unbelievable talent uh, that we're really excited about. One of our new board members is someone who used to be the CEO of a massive footwear company and he understands, excuse me, understands what we're trying to do and how to do it. In fact, the first meeting we had with him, he said, do you see Zero Shoes becoming a billion dollar company in 10 years? And I said, absolutely not. Seven years. So anyway, we're super excited about that and we're just getting that ball rolling. Um, but already, you know, we can see uh, lots of lights at the ends of various yeah. tunnels. Well, now this is something fun as I never ended up going down that route, but I had back when I, before I sold my agency, I did have my conversations. Other than like the excitement of having someone who's been where you want to go and then the resources, what really went into your thought process around why you were going to take? We have, there, there are a handful of things. So the biggest is that we've just been hamstrung by a lack of capital since day one. We didn't have the money that we needed for the kind of marketing that I wanted to do. We didn't have the money that we needed to buy as much inventory as we needed. Again, we keep running out of stuff. Um, and making footwear, it takes anywhere from, you know, 100 to 140 days from the moment you say, I need something till it shows up at your door. And so one example, we have a, um, a winter boot that we made this year blew out. And by the time we saw that it was going to sell out, to order more, it wouldn't have shown up until March. No, you know, it's yeah. too late. So we lost three, four months worth of selling because we just didn't have enough money to buy enough inventory. So 
Um, and the other thing, w- my wife and I had ga- actually more her than me, perhaps, we had guaranteed quite a significant amount of debt. So we took on a $2.3 million loan from JP Morgan Chase. Um, we have, you know, other, other, other types of debt that, I mean, we had no assets. We own nothing. Everything's in the company. So yeah. they came after us. Like, you can have my nothing, <laughs> but nonetheless, Please, take um, it. <laughs> it's all yours. Yes. Um, but, you know, my, my wife more than I gets nervous when we say that, I mean, I got to tell you, when we got the loan from JP Morgan Chase, the first line is, you know, I agree to personally guarantee $2.3 million. And I just burst into hysterics. I mean, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, it makes her a little more anxious. So not being personally responsible for a large amount of debt, you know, that's another thing. But candidly, um, which is a weird thing to say, knowing this is a podcast that other people will hear, whatever. Yes, <laughs> Yeah. Um, a year, a little over a year ago, almost a year and a half ago, we started this process. And frankly, we thought we were going to be getting an, a bidding war going for people to try and buy us out. Okay, cool. Because we've done really well. The footwear industry, once you start doing the kind of things we're doing, people get interested or nervous or both. Yeah. Um, and then when COVID kicked in, uh, everyone's investment criteria changed pretty dramatically. They were looking for sure things that were super cheap. And we were, and nothing is a sure thing, and we were not super cheap. Yeah. So that's when, um, you know, we talked to a number of people and what was showing up is people who were looking to take minority positions because they just wanted to do something. They had capital they needed to deploy, but they weren't going to take a major, major position. We know some companies that were, that are, you know, 10 times our size with profit, you know, 20 times what we are possibly doing that were similarly having big acquisition possibilities just disappear. Um, and they never really came back. Uh, and, and the other thing that, that happened towards the end of the COVID, well, towards the end of the year, we don't know, but end of the COVID time, is that um, people who had done really well during COVID were not getting valuations changing as a result of that because people were saying, it's just because of COVID. We don't know what's going to happen when things get back to normal. And vice versa, some people who'd done badly only because of COVID weren't getting any any consideration because, you know, it was COVID. We don't know if it's getting back to normal. So put it all together. And actually, one last thing, which is opportunity cost. If we waited for a year when we were twice the size we are now probably, or, or let's say we get there, um, we have more profit, we have you know everything else in place. We still would have, we would have lost a year worth of opportunity to start bringing in the resources we need now to do some of the things that are that we're now prepared to do in 2022. That if we waited, we would have had to wait till 2023 or beyond. And velocity is important. So all those things put together is what led us to saying, "Yeah, let's make this deal happen." Yeah, because I mean, I just I'm over in Europe right now in southern Spain and. Show off. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, except it's actually, I don't have a blue sky. It's 310. Blue. Today is a rainy day, one of the rare ones. But, you know, I only recently, literally within the past couple of months, started seeing your shoes on different types of, you know, athletic and some of the cross, yeah. you know, some of the CrossFit, the paleo. Yeah. You're starting now to expand out. So it is. Yeah. And we've been and, and we've been hamstrung with that. I mean, we have stuff that's been sitting on our to do list for ten years. Yeah. Well, I really am excited about this because one, yeah, you know, I jokingly said I my very last office space I had, and um, maybe one time we'll have some. <laughs> the very last office space I had was this uh, 
four, uh, what was it, 40,000 40, square feet, this huge place down in Jumbo. Wow. And we had bars, but specifically it was that um, polished cement. So that really flat. And I did it because I liked walking around barefoot around it. So when I saw your shoots, I was just like, that's, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I spent I spent a lot of time barefoot in two of my uh, three of my favorite places, Costco, Home Depot, and our local supermarket. Which same thing, polished cement. It is super smooth, and especially on a hot summer day, that cool polished cement. You go stand in the produce section of the grocery store when the mister comes on, and it's, <laughs> oh man, it's like being a kid running through a sprinkler. It's the best. I mean, I got to tell you, my first office was actually a, a two bedroom condo that I had when I moved to Boulder. And I, so I was running a company out of the second bedroom. And then a guy literally banged down my door and begged to work with me. And I eventually said yes, which was the s- smartest, luckiest thing I ever did. But at one point, after, I don't know, about six months, he goes, you know, we really should get an office. I said, well, we don't need an office, just you and me. You know, we're doing fine. He goes, yeah, I'm just kind of tired of working with you and your underwear. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Made sense to me. Yeah. Get used to it. Yeah. Well, this is why I don't have do. offices. <laughs> yeah. You get to work in your underwear all the time you want. Yeah. No, that's, I think most of the world is. By the way, I'm not going to stand up right now. Good. Well, I don't think know, any of us can. Well, I am standing, but I have a standing <laughs> desk. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. So um, I do want to kind of get back into um, why, because I really found it, I was reading, you were having pain in getting in running normally. And this kind of led, if you don't mind, you know, diving a little bit into that, because I, I found that very cool, because I've been trying to get back into running. And I am, you know, one I'm not the the twig I was, but then two, it's like, yeah, my knees and my ankles, every, yeah, it's like my heart, yeah, my lungs are there, but not my, yeah, not my joints. What, uh, what shoes do you wear when you run? Um, I wear, I don't need a, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't need a, uh, I don't need a model name, yeah. frankly, I mean, you need a brand name. I have, um, whatever nike xyz and yeah i know i know you were saying because i walk around i you know on i walk around my house and whatever here in southern spain i walk barefoot all the time but i do and i have been looking i've been going through your your shoes and i'm like okay i probably should see just because yeah i i also have a tendency of trying to be a sprinter again when i am no longer a sprinter Good I bounce. I'm like, I, yeah, I know. I still bounce, and I'm like, nah. Yeah. I need to. I need to actually let my heels do more work. Not necessarily. Okay. So, um, so let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make a reference to something else because it's a much. This is a bigger conversation, and this conversation was had in much more detail uh, on a friend of mine's podcast. So, Dr. Peter Atia, A T T I A. Peter did an interview. I introduced him to Dr. Irene Davis at Harvard, and they had a little. Uh, they did a thing on Peter's podcast. So it's Peter Atia MD. Uh, dot com slash Irene Davis I R E N E D A V I S. We'll have that in the and show. So Irene, oh, great! So Irene is um, one of the top researchers about natural movement and minimalist footwear in the world, and she does just the most incredible job laying out why quote modern athletic shoes 
cause the problems that they claim to cure and that from her research the solution is doing something more natural which is wearing something like our shoes or something truly minimalist and i'm going to say something more about that in a second or barefoot which she doesn't really recommend um, because most people aren't going to do that because they're not crazy uh, like i am or many other people but um but why that's actually often uh, the cure and the simple thing is it's not the footwear it's the form, but certain footwear interferes with the form. So let's back up and talk about some simple anatomy. A quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body are in your feet and ankles, which sounds crazy, but it's true. And you have more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. So if you think about that without too much effort, it's pretty clear you're supposed to use those things. They're supposed to bend and move and flex. That's the, all the bones and joints. And they're supposed to feel all those nerve endings because that's sending information to your brain about how to use the rest of your body for balance, agility, mobility, etc. If you interfere with any of that, it causes problems. So you put your arm in a cast, it gets weaker over time. You put your foot in something that doesn't move, it gets weaker over time. Weaker is not better than stronger. If you put a bunch of padding and cushioning underneath your foot, um, the one thing it does is it eliminates your ability to feel the ground in the intricate ways that you need to, to again, tell your brain how to use your body correctly. The other thing, cushioning is, cushioning is one of these weird um, counterintuitive things. We think cushion equals good. Because in many places, cushioning is very comfortable and it is good on a sofa, on a couch, on a chair, in a bed, when you're not moving. But the research is undeniable about footwear. It doesn't help at all. In fact, it makes the things worse because, again, you can't feel. The padding wears out and wears out unevenly, which leads to postural problems. Um, and no amount of cushioning can, well, and no amount of cushioning can reduce the impact forces of running. The thing that reduces the impact forces of running is using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons as the natural springs and shock absorbers they're meant to be by getting your feet underneath your body and using your body naturally. So I was at the physical therapist this morning, actually. I messed up my elbow doing some weightlifting things. And there was a, um, a photo, I don't know what it was for even, of just two runners. And one of the runners was landing, Just uh, you can see the picture, was just about to land with his foot way out in front of his body, landing on the heel with his toe pulled up towards his knee with a totally straight leg. And Dr. Daniel Lieberman at Harvard showed that when you do that, it creates what he called an impact transient force spike that just sends a whole ton of force right up through your joints, bypasses your muscle ligaments and tendons. If instead you're landing with your foot under, more underneath your center of mass, you're using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons more naturally. What are you, $6 million man now? That was good. No, no. They, my track coach back in the day used to have us oh, sit yeah, and yeah. do the, you know, yeah. the well, yeah. actually sit and do the hand gestures to keep your body, you know, your center of gravity up right. and down and extend the strut, not the when you see someone running or jogging. Well, yeah, it's like. The, I mean, the other thing, pardon me for interrupting, one of the other things that Lieberman showed, he was in Africa and he took runners who were habitually barefoot because they didn't have shoes and they ran with, you know, great form, right underneath, feet right underneath their body, et cetera, um, landing on their midfoot and they would let their heel come down. It's, there's no magic to, you know, keeping your heel up, but using your Achilles, which is this incredible spring basically, um, and shock absorber. And then he put regular running shoes on them and they immediately started overstriding, heel striking and putting force through their joints. Now, I want to tell you something that most people don't know. The question is, why does the modern athletic shoe look the way it is? Most people assume because someone did a whole bunch of research and these things are better for you. Not the case at all. So the way it actually happened 
years ago, uh, Bill Bowerman from Nike was, they were in a building they were sharing with, I think they were sports podiatrists, might've been orthopedic podiatrists, don't hold me to that. And he came to these docs and said, we got all these new runners who are getting Achilles tendonitis. What do you think we should do? And the doc said, well, clearly their Achilles have shortened from wearing higher heeled dress shoes. So you need to make higher heeled running shoes, put a wedge of foam in there to accommodate their, their shortened Achilles which they did and it was a new thing and Nike sold the crap out of it. Now, things in the footwear industry don't sell because they're good. They sell because they're telling a good story and it's a new story. So, and the other thing that happens in footwear, it's a bunch of copycats. I mean, if you go to a footwear trade show, you could replace the logos on most of the shoes and you'd never know the difference between 99% of them. So, uh, what happens, someone starts to do something new in footwear and all the other companies jump in because they're terrified they're going to lose money and never sell another shoe. So, you know, like if you look now with the maximalist shoes, the big cushion things, it started out with Hoka about eight years ago and now everyone's got their maximalist thing because they saw how Hoka was doing. So, wait, hold that thought. So... Here's the, here's the punchline. The punchline is that that basic design became ubiquitous. Everyone's doing it. And it also required a couple, actually, I got to back up there. It required another thing. When you put that wedge of foam underneath your heel, it means just like that African runner, you tend to land on your heel. Your heel is a ball. So now you're unstable. So now they had to build in motion control. And then when you land on your heel and your foot's outstretched, by the time your foot comes down out of the ground, you're trying to use your plantar fascia, those tendons in your feet, in a, in a position where they're at the weakest. So this is like doing a bicep curl. You're strongest at about 90 degrees. You're weakest when your arm is fully outstretched. Same thing with your feet. Strongest when you're using your arch, the strongest structure in architecture. You have those in your feet. There are three of them. Um, and weakest when it's extended. And so when you land on your heel with your foot way in front of you, by the time your foot comes down, fully extended and weak at a time where you need it to be strong. Okay. So, and there's one other thing they did. I don't know why, which is they made pointy toes. I mean, like if you look at a running shoe and then look at the shape of your foot, you're going to see there's no grip whatsoever, unless you've been shoving your foot into that shoe for a long time. And that could cause bunions and other problems. All right. So anyway, so this basic design became the design for modern athletic shoes. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine who was at Nike for 30 years was at a track meet sitting next to one of these podiatrists. And he said, your design has become the de facto standard in the industry. What do you think about that? And the guy's response was, biggest mistake we ever made. <laughs> That's a great story in capitalism. Yeah, we had no evidence. We, we, were, we were making a lot of prosthetics. So we were seeing everything as needing a prosthetic solution. We had no evidence for this Achilles shortening thing. We had no evidence that this wedge of foam would help. We had no, I mean, we made it up. And it was a huge, huge mistake. So people ask us about doing, you know, lightweight footwear that's all about letting your feet do what's natural. They go, well, where's the proof about what you do? I go, no, 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 we're not the intervention. Prior to 1970, all footwear looked like this. This is what people have been doing for millennia. I ran in the late 80s, a little bit into the late 90s, and it was the very late 80s. I had flat, so I had, for meats, I had spikes with no heel. And then my all my, you know, track practices and stuff, I had a waffle, you know, a thin rubber layer. Well, the waffle trainer, it. yeah, well, you know, track track runners have been minimalist always because, you know, you're in something super thin. If you, th if you look at the original waffle trainer, which I remember getting in like 1974-ish, um, whenever that was, I, I was, you know, 11, 12 years old, um, 
the it was uh, that waffle rubber and then a really thin layer of foam. I mean, it did practically nothing. And it also had a little thing called toe spring where if you as you lean forward, um, you kind of rocked onto your toes, which is a sprinter. I remember putting those things on. It's like, this is how I run. It was miraculous. But then they evolved there and turned into, you know, what we know now. But that's the other point. When people say, you know, um, why don't professional runners do what you're doing? I go, they do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're already running in something minimalist if they're track runners. Marathoners, different story. But the joke there is that those people were often running marathons barefoot uh, until they got sponsored by shoe companies. And now the biggest reason, when people say, why don't professional runners do what you're doing? I go, because I can't pay them millions of dollars. Every, like, Every two years, it's somehow news that Olympic athletes are wearing Nike products that they're paid to wear. Yeah, it's like this is the whole point of Nike's business. Yeah, they they sponsor a lot and not that much for these runners except for a few. No, it's it's shocking how little they actually – pay these people. It's crazy. I want to tell you here, I got to tell you a quick Nike story. Um, so the footwear industry, well, here's one of the things people all again, think that the modern athletic shoe must be designed to be, to help people. Except Irene points out that prior to say 1970, if you try to look for research on running injuries or, or, or papers about running injuries, you don't find them. I mean, you just don't find them. Now, there weren't as many people running, undeniably, but you just don't find them. The percentage of running injuries, the amount of running injuries, though, hasn't changed with the advent of modern athletic shoes. Look, they've had 50 years to make improvements, but injury rates have not changed since they came out with the modern athletic shoe. 50% of runners get injured every year. 80% of marathoners get injured every year. This is not working. Where's the proof that you're helping? In fact, I was on a panel discussion at the American College of Sports Medicine a year and a half, two years ago. Guy from Brooks and Adidas, they both said, we're trying to improve performance and reduce injury with our designs. And then I think the guy from Adi said, we haven't proven that we could do this because, you know, to do a study that would prove that we do that would be really expensive, take a really long time, have a lot of confounding factors. And Michael, you're thinking the same thing I am, which like, dude, you've had 50 years and billions of dollars. In fact, if you could make a shoe better than the guy sitting next to you, it's worth billions of dollars a year. And you're telling me you haven't done it because it's hard. It's ridiculous. But the studies. We have to do what I call the stupidest science in the world. Sarah Ridge, Dr. Sarah Ridge at BYU did a study just to see what happened if you walked around in a shoe like ours. And what she found is that when you use your feet, they get stronger, as strong as if you do an actual foot exercise program. What a shock. If you put uh, an orthotic in the shoe of a healthy athlete, this is someone else's study, within 10 weeks, they've lost up to 10% of the muscle mass in their feet. Again, immobilize your uh, any joint it gets weaker why do we have to prove this it's obvious everyone knows this but this is the kind of stupid research that people on our side have to do and then when people say why isn't there a study proving that what you do is better and again the answer is because the people who have the money to fund that kind of study it's a multi-million dollar study know what the results are going to be they know the results. We've had CEOs from three major footwear companies say to friends of ours, what Zero Shoes is doing is legit, but we can't do it because it would be admitting that everything we've been doing for 50 years is bullshit. Until they find an angle to put it in. They have no angle to put it in. They know the angle. Back in 2010, they knew doing something like this is the angle. And they they did what they called minimalist or they called barefoot. But Irene Davis's research showed that it had too much cushioning in it. So again, you couldn't feel, so you're not getting the feedback that you would need to adjust your gait to something more natural and healthy. 
And so they destroyed the very thing they were trying to capitalize on because, again, how can they tell the story that we have this super, super middleist thing that we think is better for you and the super, super cushy thing that we think is better for you? You can't do that. No. Well, I'm, I actually want to jump on that because I know you actually have a stand in talking about gurus who aren't actually adding value. I know that's a whole thing. So can let's bring this into a trend that you're seeing, or I think in your case, not as a benefit, but as something else, because I know you, you have a lot of con your blog, both, you know, you have a lot about people who say things, but don't. Yeah. You know, if I could, if I could go back in time, um, I would, uh, I would rename our company truth footwear because that's all we care about. And that's all I care about. If someone proves me wrong about something, uh, I'm cool with that. Um, you know, one of my best friends called me years ago and he said, uh, you know what your biggest problem is? That was his opening line. And I said, Ooh, this will be cool. (laughs) (laughs) This guy I've known for, you know, 30 plus years. And he says, you will tell people when they're being factually incorrect or under some cognitive bias or just simply wrong because you think they're going to go, Oh my God, thanks. Cause that's what you do. They just think you're an asshole. And I said, Oh my God, I've literally never put it together that way. And he goes, see, you just did it. So, um, which is true. So the, so I'm all about things that are truthful. And one of the trends that I see that's going on that I'm grateful for is people in the investment community are starting to wake up about these quote unicorn companies and realizing that there's no there there. It is the emperor's new clothes and then take off another layer of no clothes. So, you know, how much money is Uber going to profit this year? They're losing money like there's no yeah, tomorrow. I think it's negative four or five billion this year is what they're going right. to. Yeah, but only. they're working a lot to remove everything else. That's the CEO brought in. His entire job is to streamline it until it might become profitable. I'm trying to remember which company I heard from recently, another one of these unicorn companies that never made a penny, where uh, they explicitly said they have no path to profitability. I mean, straight out. (laughs) So the thing, the trend that I'm liking is a number of a number of people in the venture capital community are starting to wake up to this and realizing that all they've been doing is profiting by people stupider than them every time they do another raise and get someone else. It's been a Ponzi scheme. I mean, the bottom line, it's been a Ponzi scheme. And there are, I mean, there are a number of privately held companies that I know of that are, that have billion dollar plus valuations. And there's zero possibility they will ever get acquired for that amount or more. And so the latter investors will lose their money. And the early ones already made tens of millions by pulling money off the table every time they did a new round. And I find that, I find the fact that that was all going on repugnant and morally offensive. The fact that people are starting to wake up to it is great. But of course, the people who are the most vocal about saying, wow, this is really a bad, bad deal, have already made hundreds of millions of dollars doing it, and they're not giving it back to anybody. So, um, so hopefully, you know, it, it's just it, like every, I don't know what's happened in the tech world or in the investment world, but like every couple of years, everyone thinks it's changed when they're doing the same basic thing of overvaluing companies and taking money from dumber investors. I think it's ageism. You think? I, well, I mean, as somebody who raised over a million dollars on a team that was dumb as bricks, but <laughs> young and attractive. Right. Like, yeah, you should not give 
any you should not have even given us two hundred fifty thousand dollars as two out of three founders had not graduated college yet. You know, it's funny. A friend of mine, a friend of mine, uh, who's been an internet marketer. He's one of the first internet marketers ever. Um, and I met him very early on. We became very good friends. And he posted a photo with his, you know, now very gray hair, saying, and the caption was something like, "Experience outweighs." Um, enthusiasm every time. And, and it's very true. I mean, we've had employees who were just out of college, you know, in their young, early 20s, who thought they knew more about internet marketing than I did. I've been doing it for almost 30 years. And they, you know, and they thought, because I'm old, I can't know any of this shit. <laughs> and, um, and it was hysterical. I mean, you know, they would come in with, they would do things behind the scenes to prove how smart they were. And they'd bring in this big presentation, and I'd rip it to shreds in two or three sentences, not because I was trying to be mean, but because I already knew the roadblocks to what they were trying to do because I've been looking at them every couple of months for 10 years and they didn't know I was doing that, nor did they know how to find those roadblocks. So they thought I was just trying to say no to them. And it's like, no, I just know more about this than you do because I'm better at it than you do and uh, than you are. And so um, I, I'm all for youthful inexperience and naivete and enthusiasm, but you need to be able to shape that and mold that and, you know, know, I mean, I have someone on our team now our director of digital is a young guy, very, very, very smart. And it's been really satisfying seeing how much he's learned in, you know, the six, eight months he's been here and he's, and he's smart enough that he can run with it. So it took a while till he kind of got up to speed and now he's just, you know, going like gangbusters. It's a blast. No, and that's the fun because it's like, how do you connect things? It's like, great. You can make noise. You can get attention. You can do that. Yeah. The internet's full of sugar rush. If you, how do you make it? Yeah. How do you connect it? How do you make it do the things you want it to? If you can't answer that question, we don't need any dancing, skateboarding (laughs) song. (laughs) Look, I mean, people are attracted to shiny new things. I totally get it. But again, the, the, the trend for looking for real businesses that make real money by helping real people, um, that's starting to happen. And we hope that we can, demonstrate that there's value there, that that's what you really should be looking at, that you can build something that, that's going to last rather than something that is taking advantage of some weird cosmic arrangement of, you know, the planets and your and Uranus that um, allow people to take a bunch of money off the table and claim that they did a good thing because they can buy a Lamborghini. It's interesting. There's been in the past about a year, but definitely the past six months, a rise of acquisition entrepreneurship around people buying in different levels, all the way from micro acquisitions of hundreds of thousands to baby private equity, at, you know, the tens of millions you know, up in there. You kind of see they all have their own things, but it is interesting. They're all going after, you know, cash flow positive businesses and they act, it's the newest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and the thing you said about they all have their own thing is so funny because their own thing, there's still a, a giant blind spot in the world, uh, the, the, the capital world, 
about what's important. So many of these private equity firms and even the VCs, they have these bars you need to clear in order to, to you, know, you need to be over this height to get on the ride. And if you ask them, why do you have to be this height? Their answers are completely nonsense. So we talked to a number of people, you know, you need X amount of earning, X, X amount of EBITDA. It's like, all right, well, we're not there today, but we're going to be there in about three months. So what are you waiting for? Well, let's see if it get there. It's like, if you don't believe me now, I'm not going to take your money later because you're investing in us, our ability to execute and generate those results. You're not investing in the results. You're investing in how that result happened. And we're telling you it's going to happen. We've told you that reality. Well, the other thing is, I mean, Lena had a great one, my wife and co-founder. We were talking to a, a, a small PE firm a number of years ago, and uh, we were they were saying their cutoff was $5 million in revenue. We said, well, we're going to get there this year. We had done two point seven the year before. And they were like, well, you know, trust me, man. We're going to get there. And we did. We crushed it. But anyway, she said to them, why $5 million? And their answer was, and shockingly, honestly, they said it's a proxy for sophistication. It's like, okay, so take a look at what we have going on in our company. Is there anybody in your portfolio who's more sophisticated with what they're doing than we are? And they said, no. And we said, then why do we need to clear the $5 million mark? And they said, because we don't have the time to explain to our investors why we went under the $5 million mark. So that's one that was crazy. The other, we talked to a friend who was on the board. That one actually makes sense to me. Which part? Uh, That number one, because when you go to raise from LPs like that, you're, you're raising on a hyper-specific strategy, and half the time they've got LPs who have LPs who are all raising on strategies, and it really is more pain than it's worth. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, Having now gone through this process uh, where we dealt with the private equity firm, our banker, and everyone's lawyers, um, it's clear that there's an ecosystem that has evolved so that the investor doesn't have to spend so much time evaluating companies which most of which are going to suck and most of which are going to have, you know, people who lie about how they're doing or what they're doing. But the language they've developed, it's really just for convenience for them because um, they, you, you can tell that they've put together this whole structure that mostly just funnels money to them. Uh, but, but they've done it so that they don't have to work so hard, which I, I get. But, oh, my God, it's a massive waste of time, effort, and resources at the same time. Um, So here's another one, though, to your point. I I mean, other things that demonstrate exactly what you said. We have friends who are on the board of a um, multi, multi, multi multi-billion dollar uh, portfolio company. They own a bunch of companies. Um, By the way, my my favorite bit of jargon that I learned is for a VC or any company that owns a bunch of companies in their portfolio is those are their port codes. Their portfolio companies, Portcos. I like that one because it's so dumb. But anyway, um, we were talking to this company and we said, you know, if you guys were smart, you'd buy us. We were at about $2 million and change at the time. And they said, we don't look at companies under $40 million in revenue. And I said, why? Because, you know, we're going to crush it. And they said, yeah, it, it takes the same amount of time to buy a $2 million company as it does a $40 million company. And the $40 million company has a higher probability of success. And I said, you know that people have evaluated that and proven that it's not true, right? That there's no relationship between the valuation, the revenue, and the chance of success post-acquisition. Post, uh, and they go, well, I go, no, no, this research has been done repeatedly. There's no correlation at all. And they go, well, I go, zero. So, you know, 
this is what humans do. They get an idea and then they lock onto it completely, regard, completely regardless of reality. And while I understand that, it does not make me any more tolerant of it when I hear it. <laughs> so, and not to kind of then get in, but what is sort of the goal now that you have private equity? Because it's funny, I invested in teeny, um, teeny fund got to keep the teenies. There's so many teeny X, teeny Y, teeny whatever, which is just lifetime holding and sort of, yes, if there is an exit, they don't, but they expect most of their SASs to just be profitable, but never VC growth level. So they're just, they're buying into a portfolio of SASs that they expect to still be investors in 20 years from now, you know, with profit sharing divend and all that. Wait, I got to interrupt. So I've got to interrupt. So SaaS is another one of those current trends that I find hysterical because people assume that if you're a subscription company, you're somehow better than a company that has some other business model. And there's no evidence for that either. But SaaS is like the big thing. If you have a subscription model, you can build in a subscription model to the dumbest non-subscription friendly company and suddenly increase your valuation. I mean, (laughs) look at Michael going, (laughs) yeah, I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God! Well, you know, and we joked about this. If you look at if you look at our um, if you look at our revenue, if you look at how we make money, and you took off the time horizon, you would think we were a SaaS company because every time we launch a new product and every time we have our end of year sale, you see a massive spike in sales, and it looks like you know people are re-upping their their subscription. If you took out time, um, and I try to explain that to people, and they just don't get it. <laughs> well, I so, mean, anyway, it is a, like. Shoes last too long for you to run a subscription model on them. But if it's a good shoe, I will buy. I bought the exact same shoe for 10 years in a row because I knew that shoe. Yeah. And, and, and when you switch to something like ours, it's addictive. When you use your feet naturally, when you can balance, when you can feel, when, you know, it, it's completely addictive. The number of people, customers that we have who own more than 10 pairs individually, not even talking about their whole family. We have families where they own 40 and 50 is, it's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It's awesome, but it's large. Peter Atia, um, he has a similar philosophy to you, except that he buys everything in bulk because in case the product changes or it goes away. So he currently owns like 40 pairs of zero shoes just started doing that um, this year i did that way back when i was a street performer in from 1976 to 81 or something and i did a bunch of gymnastics in my act uh because i was a former all-american gymnast and i found a shoe that worked and i and i found a company that was that bought all the remaining inventory uh adidas stopped making the shoe because it lasted too long and this one company bought them all because they were selling product to prisons i don't know how i found them um in new york and i bought the last 10 pairs that existed and you know had them for years awesome that's cool prison shoes (laughs) quick question do you feel that being a street performer at that point informed your abilities as an entrepreneur and your ability to grow zero now i i love that you asked that i have the notes for a book um called the street performer's guide to entrepreneurship or marketing or one of those Um, i don't remember which because as a street performer your fundamental business model is i'm going to make people stop for no good reason stick around for no good reason, and then give me money for no good reason. And the marketing 
the, the, the specific marketing lessons you learn about how to do each one of those phases is very interesting and really is transferable and applicable. So I, I can't draw a direct connection and say, here's this specific thing that um, I did as a street performer. Actually, you know what? You can. Um, if you think about a good ad, uh, the idea is, you know, what is it? Attention, interest, desire, action, something like that. AIDA. Is that the... So the thing you do to make people stop is you need to do something to get their attention. I my, The finale of my act was walking on broken glass in my bare feet, somewhat um, ironic. <clears throat> so I would be shaking out this giant uh, um, army blanket with, you know, 50 pounds of broken glass on it. And people would be like, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm going to walk on that in my bare feet in a few minutes, in a few minutes. And, you know, the sickos in the crowd would go, cool. <laughs> so, you know, got their attention. It was great. Um, it was an amazingly fun time. So, you know, getting attention is a, is a first thing. Um, providing something of value, that's really the biggest thing. The only way you're going to get money is if you provide real value, if you do a real good show, if you give people a real good experience. And you have to have a good call to action. You've got to, you know, get people to then reach into their pocket for no good reason and give you their hard-earned dollars. And if you can't get them to do that, then you know you, there's something wrong with your business. Um, and I have to tell you, my favorite, my favorite, uh, money getting line from a street performer ever is a friend of mine here in Boulder who calls himself the zip code man because he knows every zip code in the world practically. And so he does this bit where you tell him your zip code, he tells you where you're from and about where you're from. And it, and he does a whole lot more to it, but that's, you know, the gist of it. So at the end, he, you know, he's asking for money. He goes, you know, look, you don't have to give me money. I'm just asking. There's no obligation. But just remember, if you don't, I know where you live. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, has gotten it. That is, I like that. I like watching the performance. Sorry, wait, in the yeah. Sorry, you gave me, it's such a good thought. I got to give you one other thing about, you know, what do you, what I, what do you learn from street performing that applies? And the other thing is street performing like marketing. It's all about testing. It's all about trying something to see what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, you get immediate feedback. How did I make money during the show or not? How much did I make? What was, did the crowd leave or not? Did they, you know, is the crowd getting bigger? I mean, there's all, when I first developed my, the act that I was doing in Washington Square Park, I had just a rudimentary idea about what I wanted to do. And I just went out and tried stuff and some of it worked and some of it nearly killed people. And I left in the part that's nearly killed people. <laughs> And, you know, if it got really close, it was really fun. Um, so, but that iterative thing of testing and not being attached to your opinion. Like I say to people every day when they're trying to sell me some marketing thing, I go, look, I have a lot of opinions about what's going to work. I'm just experienced enough that I don't care about them. I could be raw. I'm, I've often been wrong and made money and often been right and lost money. So I don't care what I think. And I think a lot of things. Because I've been doing it a long time. I think we all think too much, uh, which is why it's good to have hobbies that don't require you to think that much. It's funny you say that. My pe someone asked me about sprinting, and they said, "What? Why do you, why do you do it?" And there are a lot of reasons, but one of one of the things that I say is, in a race, the moment between between set and the gun going off, it's the quietest moment in the world for me. There's just nothing but this sort of relaxed, excited anticipation. And then if you watch my start, um, my start is faster than a lot of Olympians for whatever reason. But that moment of just like waiting is divine. And in a hundred meter race, you only get like three thoughts. You get drive, transition, hold on. That's it. 
<laughs> and it's just, and then at the end of the race, people say, how'd you do? And my answer is, do you want it with the excuse or do you just want a number? So you can never get it right. It's always, it could always be better. And uh, that plays in there too. Yeah. It's funny you say it's right before the gun because I ran quarters and eights and I like the last turn to me that <laughs> if I was in, if I was in the flow, if I was yeah, if yeah. I the moment, everything disappeared. And it was literally that idea of where my arm was going, where my foot position and either side, because that's where you come all the, you know, you come like you're whipped right in that yeah, you final thread. You get that and slingshot. It's like, you know, there it's like, okay, I am a half a step. This, my arm is ahead of him. If I, I got him, you know, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have to wait. If you, if you come off that turn and your arm is right there and his is, <laughs> you're like, yes. <laughs> but, in the, but in the four, you also know you've got about six more steps till someone throws a piano on your shoulders. Yes. <laughs> it all, yeah. Every, I mean, that's the one thing about it. It's like, you just, a hundred is so beautiful because it is just boom. You're well, you know, I actually, I like the indoor 50 or 60 even better because all you get is like, and then you're done. I, I used to, I used to go to the indoor invitationals when I was college and a little, uh, sorry, in high school and then a little bit in college. And it was amazing for the, for the 60, for the shuttle hurdles. Yeah. You know, they would do it on that and you would see the, you know, you said so you would see the masters come and you were like, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very satisfying. Yeah. Most of the guys I race, I mean, there's not a lot of masters sprinters. Um, and so there's a lot of times where I'm at a meet and the guys that are in my heat are in their, you know, thirties and maybe early forties. And, and of course they, I, I beat a couple of them, but most of them beat me. And, uh, but they're like, I've gotten to the age where they see me as an inspiration, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, I've mixed feelings about. <laughs> <laughs> that is cool. Cause yeah. That, but I mean, on your, so on your last interview on the show, which I try to listen to everyone's the day before they come on, you talked about how you could almost become an evangelist just for movement and for good movement. And is that not the ideal? Yeah. I mean, we, uh, I, um, I like to say that we're creating a movement movement. And what I mean is that our primary goal is to help people rediscover that, pardon me, that natural movement is the obvious, better, healthy choice the way we currently think of natural food. And we're creating a movement because what makes people become aware of that is more and more people spreading the word. It's not a top-down thing. It is a grassroots thing. Now, granted, to get that grassroots thing, some of that includes some top-down marketing. But, you know, it's really just having more and more people have the experience in sharing that. So that's huge for what we do. And when people ask me what my goal is in that regard, I go, look, if all the major companies started doing what we're doing, I won. I'm thrilled because we know that natural movement has demonstrable benefits. And that's what I want people to experience. There's no reason for all. Irene Davis said it best. She said, if we got kids growing up in your shoes, in 20 years, we wouldn't be treating adults for the billions of dollars of problems they now have. They wouldn't have them. That's a big deal. Again, I, I don't like when people make money by lying to other people. And I would argue that big shoe, 
is BS and it is lying to other people about what those products do or don't do. I mean, as a, here's a brilliant example. Back to um, our favorite friend, Nike. They have a new shoe that's there, uh, not new now, and it's been out for a little while, the React Infinity Run. And they advertise it as designed to reduce injury, as if any shoe was designed to increase injury. So be that as it may. They, they say in an independent study, this shoe was shown to reduce injury by 50%. Okay, the independent study designed by them, paid for by them, executed by somebody else. So be it. In that independent study, it did in fact show that that shoe produced 50% fewer injuries than the other shoe, which was one of their, which was their best selling motion controlled padded pointy toe running shoe. Their own shoe. <laughs> That's fine. But here's the kicker. What they didn't say, and I had to find the people who did the research and have them send me the data, is that their best selling shoe in a 12 week study which really the most important part is about a 10-week window in that study. Over 30% of the people got injured in that shoe. In the new shoe, only 14.5% got injured. This is kind of like me saying to you, I'd like to buy you dinner from a restaurant. Would you prefer the restaurant that gives people food poisoning one out of seven meals or one out of three meals? I mean, I'll take one out of three. (laughs) You like to live on the edge. Yeah, but I do love how... Food and shoes, like they both have an evil triangle. They both got corrupted. Yeah. They both brought up a whole slew of problems that didn't exist before. And it only took us like 50 or 60 years to get started on fixing it. And it's hard to fix it because when you threaten someone's livelihood, they don't go sorry and walk away pleasantly into the sunset they you know they try to take you down along the way and they you know they're they're not going to change horses midstream or at the end of the stream or any part of the stream they're, they're not even getting another horse in it nearby so it, it's it, it, it's the same thing we see with the energy industry you know some of the oil companies are getting hip to the fact that oil is on the way out and there's and i mean bp started doing this years ago is they started investing in in alternative uh, technology but Exxon, you know, it's like, whoa, shit. So, you know, some companies are smart enough to realize that they have no choice and other companies aren't, have not gotten to that point yet. It almost seems like some of this is just going back and I'll even go back to, you know, calling food. Some of it's just going back to the way things were before you had the profit, a large, as large of a profit motive involved. Well, you know, there was a, always a lot of profit in footwear. Um, if you, it's just that America was slow to the slow to catch up. If you if you read a book, oh gosh, I just blanked on the name of it. Um, it was um, oh man, oh man, oh man. Um, it was about the history of Adidas and Puma, um, which is kind of funny because they're two brothers who grew up together and they started competing shoe companies on the other side of a river in the same town, and. When you and, and, and it was like the Hatfields and the McCoys. I mean, crazy. Um, but they were making a lot of money selling footwear and then a lot of money selling soccer shoes. Soccer was never, never a big sport in America. So they really couldn't penetrate America, which is what gave Nike an, uh, the opportunity. Now, Nike nearly went under multiple times. You know, we, we look at business success with a tremendous lens of hindsight bias and survivorship bias. 
Um, but that was an opportunity that Nike had that, that that Adi and Puma didn't have. They also just didn't have a big presence in America. So there was just an open – there was an open opportunity. But when you – uh, when you look at what those companies did from you know the beginning of the century of the 1900s on, there was a lot of money to be made, um, and it just expanded as it expanded dramatically. Of course, once running became and jogging became a thing in the 70s, and then more and more people were looking to buy more and more different kinds of shoes. Uh, that was a that was a big big motivator or big uh, instigator as well. No, that was cool, and yeah, it's funny because I do remember like Nike was a really basic brand and then all of a sudden the you know the jordan you know like all of a sudden they had a street so the basketball like that changed yeah. they had that changed that changed everything there's a there's an amazing documentary called just for kicks that high, uh, that chronicles the co-emergence of hip-hop culture and basketball and sneaker culture and um, and it really, it started out very organically. It was the hip hop guys who were talking about their shoes and then the shoe companies realized they could capitalize on this and they just pounced. And then it became, the guy who made the documentary uh, has become a friend. And when he made the documentary, he was just fascinated by this thing. When he finished the documentary, he was appalled by it because it really has been one of the largest extractions of capital from urban communities ever orchestrated. And no one sees it as that. They see it as, I, I don't know what, but I mean, no one has put two and two together to see how much money gets taken out of, you know, urban black communities and especially uh, because of footwear, because of footwear marketing. And it's repulsive. So I feel like you might be a historian. Did you get a minor in history somewhere along the I'm way? I'm horrible at history. I'm at, it, it is the, no, no, it is. I had to cram for a history test, take the test, and then it was immediately out of my head. So, so that ain't my thing. Horrible at memorizing dates, but you've told us the story of the entire shoe, shoe industry today. I'm good, I'm good with some stories. I'm bad with history. I'm good at the story part of history. I don't, and, and, and if you, and if you really, if you poke me hard, if you don't have to poke me that hard to find out that I won't remember names and I won't remember specific dates really well, but I, I'm, I remember the essence of the story, but the specifics, when I hear historians, I'm amazed by what they do and how they put two and two together. Everything I've said, almost everything I've said was not something where I had to put it together. It was just getting inside information. In adding that, are you, you know, and you talk about movement, you, you know, you bring in these things from a, to you is promoting natural movement. Is that your legacy? Hell do I know. I'm not dead yet. Um, okay. Is that I, what you want your legacy to be? I honestly don't care if no one ever knows who I am. Not my thing. Um, which is which sounds kind of odd because I this personality seems to, seem, you know, like relate to people getting attention. Um, but I honestly don't care. Um, if, if no one knows what I had to do with making this happen, I'm totally cool with that. Um, if if anyone's going to remember me for something, I, I like the idea. I, I, I have said on occasion that I would love to live long enough to see people recognize that not just I, but the people who are promoting natural movement were right and that we did change the world. I, I would like that. I wouldn't mind you know, being part of that story. Um, I invented way back when I invented the industry standard software, word processing software for film and television writers. We won't get into the, all the gory details about that, but suffice it to say, I, I, I changed an entire industry. No one knows it, 
Um, there's a handful of guys at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and of course my competitors, they all know, but fundamentally no one knows. And that's cool. At the same time, you know, might, we might relaunch that software because the Academy said, if I do that, I might get an Academy Award for technical achievement. And it'll be super fun to have that in the bathroom. <laughs> Great conversation starter. Well, somebody, somebody told me the reason that, the, that you put your Academy Award in the bathroom is that, wait, do I have anything I can do it with? I don't. Is that you know that if someone goes into the bathroom and sees the Academy Award, they're going to pick it up and look in the mirror and do their acceptance speech. <laughs> and so, you know, that would be really fun. I'd like to thank the Academy for letting me use the loop. <laughs> I'd like to thank my agent who uh, inspired me taking a dump. Yes. <laughs> Is that the point of agents? But um, no, it's funny because exactly. I have, I had taken script writing and I had a little really bad writing period. And yeah, I had used that software. So it was funny when seeing, I took it, uh, I forget the class even that we had to use it for. But yeah, it was one of those, you know, new school, you know, one of the, you know, new school, you know, where it was like, come in, script writing, the hero's two journeys, all that. <laughs> all that fun. So no, that's cool to know you had done that. Well, I mean, in not caring about the legacy, is it that you feel you've gotten your, you know, this is, I think, even more part as an entrepreneur, your life together? Do you feel like, you know, because you mentioned your wife and... Not you mentioned your wife really positively. Not that that is the whole thing. You like you should, but like, is it because your life is the way you want it? Is it that you kind of feel like you know what this is all good, but it's all about what well, you have? Because no uh, one cares what the business is. It's yeah, well, no one cares. No one cares who I am. It's my favorite thing when I bump into someone wearing my shoes and they don't know who I am. I love it. It means that the business has transcended me despite the fact that I'm the face of the business. I think that's just much more important. And the other reason why is that once you achieve a certain level of success, let's call it, and usually that just means money, which is in a whole other conversation, um, A, people treat you differently in ways that are very odd, and B, they they ascribe to you personality traits and characteristics that are probably, it's all positive projection. They're making shit up and they're, you know, thinking it's you. And it's just, um, I, I'm allergic to positive projection. I just don't like it. It's really, it's just cloying and unpleasant, you know, like an actual conversation with, see, here's, here's one of these weird things. I basically treat everyone like they're an old friend of mine because it's just too much effort to do anything otherwise. And so when people are not responding the same way, it's very annoying. It's actually, it's kind of funny. There are a number of people here in Boulder who have a lot of money who I, I see them at parties all the time and they've never said a word to me because I don't have that kind of cash. And at some point, if we had that kind of cash, they'd suddenly invite me into their fold. And I say this because I've seen them do it to friends of mine who suddenly become very, very wealthy. And on the one hand, I just want to kind of go, you know, I'm not interested. On the other hand, I get it because when you have that kind of wealth, other people treat you strangely. And to be able to, to, to walk more anonymously, it's just more pleasant. You can have more, you can have interaction. There are a couple of famous people that I know, and I've said to them, um, I am met, wait, I got to do this in a weird way. So back around, when was this? 1995 to 2000, I was the co-host of a internationally syndicated television show. And I went to Bermuda to uh, actually help teach an internet marketing workshop. And um, the waiter at our 
at the restaurant in our hotel kept using phrases that I thought I had invented. And I was really confused by this until finally, in a very British way, he sort of whispered in my ear, we only have four television stations here on the island and your show is on one of them. So you're famous here. And it's like, oh. And so I would, I'd be walking around and then people would see me from like 50 yards away and do like a massive double take and then act really, really weird. It really wasn't fun. <laughs> and so um, to be able to avoid that would be great. And so again, backing up to these, you know, really well. Oh, so I've said to some of my friends who are super wealthy, I know that look that people get in their eye when they're kind of starstruck and they want and, the, and tongue tied and all the rest. It's really not pleasant. If I ever do anything in my relationship with you that has that air of, you know, like weird disconnect of who's where, just just stop me. Just, you know, slap me because it's possible that I'll do it. Um, no, I don't think anyone's immune. I, I'm, I don't, do, I'm not likely to do it, but it's possible. So just s- slap me. I don't want to have to go around <laughs> slapping people. Don't want to. Are you sure? I've, I've been in situations where I've basically, I've actually been in one situation where I literally did it, where somebody, I'm not going to go into the long, stupid story. Bunch of us are at brunch. Someone comes by who knows one of the other people at brunch. That person introduced them and says, you know, this is Stephen Sashin. And that the person who just walked up went, Stephen Sashin, oh my God, it's such so nice to meet you. And they literally fucking namaste to me. And I literally, <laughs> I literally smacked them in the face, not hard, and said, don't ever do that to me or anyone else ever again. Now, hopefully, were they Japanese? No. Just, you know, white kid. Just a white kid. Um, I, <laughs> You know, I, my, my dad was a dentist, um, so I knew a lot of medical people. I didn't refer to them as doctor or whatever. I don't call my doctors doctor something. I, had, I, I just don't, I don't get into that kind of, you know, who's above whatever. Thing. I had the opportunity to meet um, Barack Obama, and I was really struggling because how would I say hello? Because I don't want to say, hello, President Obama. I don't do honorifics. It's just not my thing. And so I was going, what am I going to do? I mean, the guys, you know, like my age, we'd probably get along if we met each other socially and I, we didn't know who's what. I finally figured out I would make an end run around the whole thing by introducing myself and just shaking his hand and going, oh my God, I am so much shorter in real life. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, just something just to to, to, to pattern interrupt and then have a real conversation. You know, that's always my goal. When the reason I thought the name of the show beyond eight figures was so cool was when I ended up selling my last business, I sold on the way down. I had gotten offers around in the upper seven figures. And I had said, no, I want 10 million. That was my FU money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I have a very small, you know, I ended up with a few very small violin. Um, And what you do with it is the most interesting part. And that's what I found, you know, find. So it's like you're doing so many cool things. You're kind of moving on the movement and you're expressing us through a type of business that makes sense and is doing well in doing so with the outside investors and stuff. So it is really cool seeing that. It's like, yeah, and it doesn't matter what your big man persona is because you have well, it. You, well, you know, it, it, it's also kind of a joke um, that if we ended up with tens of millions of dollars in Boulder, that would make us middle class. So it's um, the the money, the 
the money changes some things about, I mean, my joke is, so we, we got a little money last week. Um, instead of buying honey crisp apples at $1.99 a pound, I bought the new cosmic crisp apples at $2.99 a pound. How are they? they? Better apple? Awesome. They're great. Um, I mean, they're better than honey crisp. Worth the extra dollar. So, uh, I, you know, I would still clip coupons. It's, I mean, I, I just shopped for a new car for my wife and I negotiated the crap out of that. Um, I didn't need that extra, you know, $500 off. I have the $500. Okay. So, well, all right. Sounds like you did something very intelligent, but for a high purchased, you know, a high ticket purchase. Even, well, even, even little things. I mean, I, I, I got to do, here's a weird story. Um, so with my screenwriting software, I met a bunch of very successful writers and directors. And again, by successful, I mean, they made a lot of money. And so uh, I was in the house of one of them. He had a house on Mulholland Drive in LA overlooking the valley and the city. Um, it was a very, very expensive house. In his little studio room, which was not small, it was like 20 by 40. It was a huge room. He had a couple of Warhol paintings. He had a couple hundred thousand dollars of the stereo equipment. He had, you know, all this. I mean, just, it was, this was more money than I'd ever seen. And we're sitting on these Herman Miller chairs before anyone knew what a Herman Miller chair was. And I made some comment about it. He goes, oh yeah, um, we got these when we were shooting this movie because we used them in the movie and he let us buy them for $200 each. I mean, they're normally like two grand, but I would never spend $2,000 on a chair. <laughs> Look around. You know? And then I realized we each had the same kind of mentality around certain kinds of products where this is how much you're comfortable spending and anything out of that range makes no sense. And even people with tons and tons of money, there's certain things where it's like, I can't spend $2.99 for a pound for apples. That's ridiculous. And so there's this weird mental accounting thing that you will continue to do no matter how much money you have. Um, and and But the simple thing is um, you you won't be fundamentally happier, and no one believes this, and I'll say more about that in a second, but there are certain things where you just won't be as stressed out. Larry David uh, was interview, interviewed by Charlie Rose, and he, Charlie Rose said to him, you know, you've made like hundreds of million dollars from the syndication of Seinfeld. Do you worry about money? And it took Larry a long time till he conceded that he made hundreds of millions of dollars. And then he finally said, you know, when I had no money, there was a part of my brain that worried a lot about money. I would go shopping at the grocery store late at night because I was sometimes buying soup with change that I found in my sofa. With all this money, I don't worry about money, but that part of my brain is still working overtime. So you know, it, it just shifts a little bit. Daniel, um, Daniel Gilbert at Harvard wrote a book. It's one of my favorite books, and I think everyone should read it, called Stumbling on Happiness. And he did a TED talk about it too. That you'll get that. The, so the TED talk is the twenty-minute version of however long it takes you to read a book. Here's the one-minute version. Human beings are constantly trying to figure out what what kind of future will make us happy or eliminate unhappiness. We are horrible at predicting those things. Horrible. We're even worse at remembering how bad we are at it. And we think that we're special. If we interviewed a million people who got the thing that we thought would make us happy and found out that they were no more or less happy than we are, we would still think, yeah, but if I got it. So no matter how many lottery winners you hear of, of who aren't happier after they won the lottery, you think, yeah, they're idiots. If I won the lottery. So it's really, really true. You know, once you've got somewhere to live, something to eat, a relationship that doesn't make you crazy, uh, it, that's it. Food on the table. I already said that one. You know, you're you're taken care of. 
No, that is definitely true. And it is that kind of feeling of like, all right, why, why do we do this? Oh, because it's a game. It's fun. It's better toys. You know, it's better. I'll I'll confess. I mean, Lena and I are on the entrepreneurial retirement program. I mean, we've never, we've always been entrepreneurs. We don't have a pension or, you know, big 401k or whatever. Um, When we started the business and we realized it was going to be bigger than what we thought, we thought it was going to be a car payment. We literally thought this would be, you know, a few hundred bucks a month. When we saw that, A, it was changing people's lives, and B, it was going to be much bigger than a car payment, we were like a year, seven months in, we had some guys who had all met at Reebok 35 years earlier sitting at our kitchen table, our dining room table, uh, saying, you know, we believe in what you're doing, and we believe in you, and we would do this with you, but we've been in footwear long enough that we're not stupid enough to start a shoe company. And, but, you know, we really want to support you. And Lena walked into the kitchen and with the appropriate hand gesture said, I'm all in. And that was our, the beginning of our commitment for, you know, this is, hopefully this will be our retirement plan. And whether we continue to work or not, it will be, it'll allow us to not have to, if we don't want to. And um, uh, that was a good thing. We had done some investing back in the, back around the turn of the, the, the millennium where we thought it was, we were retired. And then when it was a bunch of real estate stuff that we had done. And then in 2006, we saw that real estate was going to crash. And we realized that what we thought was going to be income for the rest of our life was not going to be for the rest of our life. And so, um, we hope that we find ourselves in a situation where we don't have to make decisions like, do I work at Walmart or Quiznos? Yeah, that's kind of, I think creating value, constantly finding ways to create value. So you don't have to go to. <laughs> yeah, friend, a friend, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine's a big deal psychologist, and someone's and who's made a lot of money. And someone said to him, "How do you make a lot? How'd you make so much money?" He goes, "Oh, making money is easy. Figure out what improves people's lives and charge them a little bit of money to find out." And um, that you know, the more the more you can help, or the more people you can help then that's that's it. Now, there's other ways of doing it, of course. I, I had a guy I went to college with who went, on, went to Wall Street, ended up with a half a billion dollars. And when I asked him what the fundamental thing is that allowed him to make so much money, he said, oh, for a period of time, we knew how the Japanese stock market was going to open a half an hour before anyone else did. It's like, son of a I am so jealous. And we were able to trade frictionlessly. There was no cost for trading. So they, they had inside information that they capitalized on for you know some period of time until other people figured it out. And that window closed, but by then they had pulled billions of dollars out of other people's pockets. God, that must have been an interesting when it did close, just because it's like, oh, we have the... Uh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I really love stories about how guys in finance make tons of money because it's entirely about asymmetric information. And so it's more like espionage and spy work than it is accounting. Oh my God. There's a guy, there's a company here in town. Um, I was at a party, met a guy working for this company. I said, what do you guys do? They said, we make cables that traders use to connect their computers together. I said, what? He goes, our cable transmits data five nanoseconds faster than our competitors. Is that wire by chance? No. Okay. Um, that, That gives them enough of an edge that they can make money. It's like, oh my God. That is crazy, Bill. Beyond the realm of consciousness lies the trading. Yeah. Trading is a whole other story. And that's supposed to represent us. We, yeah. 
all of us poor suckers create things and do things and then they make the money. Well, you know, I'll tell you, it's funny. Um, you're right. Um, there are other ways to make money. People always ask me on entrepreneurial podcasts, and uh, if you do, if you were planning on it, my apologies for front running you, but they'll always say, uh, what advice do you have for a budding entrepreneur? And I always say, get a government job with a pension. So there, there are much better ways to secure a comfortable future for yourself than this. And, you know, there's lots of ways of doing it. Um, and everyone sees the grass on the other side a little greener. When I went back for my 30th college reunion, my five, five of my closest friends were there. And I think that we had each taken each other's alternate history or alternate future. So I didn't go to medical school, even though I was a pre-med, there was the doctor. I didn't go to business school, even though I aced the GMAT and got a, you know, was offered a free ride. There was my friend who went to business school. I didn't, you know, it's like each one of these things. And what was so wonderful is over the course of the weekend, we all saw that we each in a, in a subtle, slightly competitive, slightly fraternal, though we weren't in a fraternity way, we're a little envious of each other in a way that was just sweet. It's like we all saw there but for whatever go I, and the other one went there, and it worked out well. And so it was, it was, it was beautiful. You know, each person saw it just, you know, it's like, I wish I had done what you did. I wish I did what you did. And we just could go in a circle. It was great. That is kind of cool because, yeah, the entrepreneurial journey is crazy because up until I sold my last company, I had been a paper millionaire multiple times over and I'd sold some businesses. But when I took it against what, if I had just taken the nice corporate job and done the thing, I was still <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had yeah. been a millionaire multiple times. Lost yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had well, years where I made $5,000. <laughs> yeah, <was> right. Like, <laughs> There's, well, there's another variation of that this, this is, that's more relevant in a way. I was, at a, um, I was at a trade show in Germany, and our lawyers invited me to this super expensive dinner, which I said, I'm happy to get the dinner. It was one of the best and most expensive meals I've ever had. I also said it would be better if you just took that off my legal bill, but all right. Um, I was the, uh, I, there was a whole bunch of people in the room that were being introduced to say a little something, and each one of them was the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh, thank God they're not going to ask me to talk. <laughs> and, and then I'm the last one, and they introduced me as the only founder in the room. And so I say whatever I said, I don't remember. But then after, the, after I did that, during the course of the dinner, every one of those CEOs came up to me and said, um, wow, we're so impressed because we couldn't do what you're doing. And I said, oh, I get it now because I can't do what you're doing. There's no way I could, my brain doesn't work in that way of, you know, how to run and manage some big thing. That's not what I do. So that was a really cool moment. And, and, and backing up to the very beginning of our conversation, one of the other reasons why we brought on this, this um, equity partner is because we're at the phase now where the kind of talent we need to take us to that next stage, which is a nine-figure company, is um, not me. I mean, there's a role for me, but I'm not the guy who's going to run that thing. Nor is Lena. Lena is a brilliant, brilliant operations and finance person. But there are people who, um, you know, they love doing it. <laughs> and she just happens to be really good at it. Uh, and and we'll have a role. But it's a, you know, we all know this, that businesses go through these different phases and uh, it, it, it's, I mean, it really is a caterpillar becoming a butterfly metamorphosis. It's not, it's not stair step. It's not linear. It, I mean, it is a radical new thing to take those next steps. 
Well, very cool. Well, look, we've taken a lot of your time and this is really cool going because yeah, first thing I'm doing is I'm buying my son and I because I'm training him to be an 800 meter um, runner. Yeah, actually, I wanted to point out, I'm so happy you got the funding because your site says you have worldwide advertising. But I looked on, and I don't know how you're feeling in Amazon because that could be a whole nother branch. But I looked on Amazon Spain. I typed you guys in. There was like 20 of your competitors before I found a reseller of yours. Way below. Because, because we're trying to figure out the EU. And what that means is that um, unlike the United States, where it's just a monolith, you know, there's, it's really pretty simple. In the EU, every country has its own tax laws, employment laws, everything else thing. We, are, we're, we actually have a number of resellers uh, in Europe, and we're growing very, very quickly in Europe. But to figure out, even, even just to have a presence on Amazon in the EU, Amazon EU, Amazon ES, any of those, um, opens us up to tax issues that back up to this thing of, you know, you get to that next level, you need a whole new kind of person. We need a whole new kind of entity just to handle European taxation and uh, and employment things. In fact, we have a meeting this afternoon about that because we know that's one of the next places that we can grow really, really fast. But you don't just open up. I mean, there are people who do this. They just open up an Amazon store for the EU, but they're not they're not um, playing by the rules. They're not if if they were in a situation where they were ever going to get acquired or get an investment in the due diligence. When someone saw how they're handling the EU. Uh, they would find that that's a real mess and they would be massively devalued. Our goal is to be so above the line, if you will, that whenever someone does due diligence, the only thing they say to us is, oh my God, I mean, that was easy. You've done it all, which is what happened in this last one. There was nothing that anyone found that gave them any reason to devalue the company. And so we're very, very, we want to make sure that um, we're in a position where it's the easiest investment or acquisition someone's ever done from a due diligence perspective. Very cool. So, I mean, that does, since you've, you've mentioned due diligence a few times, is there a time frame on this or are you just? Um, no and yes. The no is things happen when they happen. Yeah. As we've learned this year, you know, you can't control the universe. Um, <laughs> despite all of one's best efforts and mantras and, you know, sweat lodges. Uh, the yes is that in the footwear industry, it's pretty common that once you hit about a 40 to $50 million run rate, that a bunch of big companies come in to try to acquire you. Whether you say yes or not, whole different story. But that's the, that's the point where you've cleared every possible hurdle that there is for anyone's objection about why, unless you're not making money. If you're doing 40, 50 million run weight and you're not making money, that's ridiculous. But if you're at 40 or 50 with EBITDA in the 15% range or 20% would be even better, then, then other people are going to want to come in because what the bigger players can do is they can optimize what you're doing by by basically taking a lot of what you're doing and not you having to do it. They've already got that all set up and there's instant money for them. I mean, tens of millions of dollars to hundreds of millions of dollars instantly by wrapping you into their, to become one of their port codes. Um, and so we expect that we're going to be approached because we've already had people do interesting things and have interesting conversations with us. What we're going to say at that time, I don't know. Somebody, like, again, I'll, I'll confess 
We have a fractional CFO who said to Lena and I once, if some of you offered you offered you $50 million for your company, but you knew they weren't going to do the right thing by the brand, uh, would you take it? And without missing a beat, we said, absolutely not. She mm-hmm. goes, what about $100 million? I said, okay, so now you know we're whores. Yeah. Just a question of negotiations. That's right. If I were in my late 30s to early 40s, I would have had the same answer, which was absolutely not. But at 58, um, you know, I'm weighing now. Now, the other thing that's important to us, I have to be clear when I say that, is the entity that we've built, the people that are on our team, the culture that we have is hugely important. So if somebody offered us $100 million and everybody here was going to lose their job, we'd say no to that yeah. in a hard. So it does seem like there's more friendly acquisition out there in this day and age because the under. Well, this is that's the you know maybe I'm, I'm seeing a different world than you are. So let me definitely phrase. That. I, I, I shook I shook my head or I you know did whatever yeah. this movie because I have some friends who've been acquired by those bigger companies and to call it friendly would be the overstatement of the year. Okay. Yeah. And Started I did, out friendly did not end up that way. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. All right. Well, I have one last question. So how true to size are your shoes? Because (laughs) this is is real. Oh, my God. This is huge. I have one foot is 12 and three quarters. The other is just over 12 and a half. (laughs) And it is the bane of my existence that running shoes (laughs) fit. So – um, I'm laughing because uh, let me get that can of worms to open. So here's a here's a thing about footwear. Here's the thing about humans. Humans think that whatever they're experiencing can be extrapolated out to everybody. So there is no such thing as true to size. It doesn't exist. When people call me and say, "Well, I'm a size nine, I go, "Do you have any eight and a halfs in your closet?" They say, "I'm a true size nine." I go, "Do you have any eight and a halfs?" They go, "Yeah." Any nine and a halfs? Yeah. Any tens? You know, one, any eights? No. I said, okay, why do you think you're a nine? You think you're a nine because in your favorite shoe, you're a nine. In a couple of your favorite shoes, you're a nine. But between brands and even within a brand, there's no consistency in part because of two things. One, personal preference. I could take three people with identical feet and put them in the same shoe. They'll have three opinions about whether it fits. That's one. The other is that when they say they're a true size nine, they're talking about, you know, some measurement of length, typically, sometimes a measurement of width. I'm a nine E or whatever the hell that means. That's a two dimensional thing, but your foot is a three dimensional thing. And you can't map two dimensions onto three dimensions accurately. And then the materials that you're using in the shoe change how that works. Canvas, which stretches, leather with stretches, synthetics, which, which don't, kind of, unless they have some stretch built into them. That's a factor as well. The other thing is people have ideas about sizing that aren't necessarily accurate. So one idea is you need X amount of space in front of your longest toe. Well, maybe. The way that evolved is if you have a shoe that has a foam midsole, the, and I've got to grab a book to show this. I wish I had a phone book. Instead, I have a book about Facebook marketing. Um, if, you phone, if you take a phone book and you bend it, the inside bends faster than the outside. Well, the same thing happens with a shoe with a, with a foam midsole. The inside bends faster than the outside, so you need more space between your toes because as you're going through the gait pattern, the shoe is effectively getting shorter, which is why you see runners at the end of a race, they have blackened toenails and toenails that have fallen off because the shoe got shorter and they jammed into the shoe. We don't have a foam midsole 
So I have my toes right up against the edge of the shoe. In fact, it's a great yardstick for me to tell me when I need to trim my toenails, which I did this morning. And um, but I've never had I've never had an issue because our shoes don't effectively shorten. So because and no one's ever going to get this right where you can figure out sizing and comfort online. There's two there's two things that people are trying to do that are a horrible idea, virtual reality and augmented reality. We'll show what this shoe looks like on your foot. I said to one of the the, the uh, augmented reality companies, if somebody has a crazy Neanderthal foot that's wider than it is long, what do you do? They go, oh, we resize the image so they can see what the shoe looks like on their foot. I went, hey, moron, then they're going to buy the shoe thinking it's going to fit. It, it won't. So, And if you set their expectations high, dashing someone's expectations is way more unpleasant than if they didn't have them to begin with and they just had to work through some problems. So the so put all that together um, and there's never going to be a perfect way to do it other than, hey, we do free exchanges, you know, until you get the size you like. That's the way we can do it. In terms of people like you who have uh, one foot slightly longer than the other, I tried to figure out a way to be able to accommodate that with a thing that I was calling find a foot friend. So your foot are like this, find someone who's like this. I, we, we're not in a position to do that. Some bigger company may, but we can't because to do that, the inventory management would be ghastly. And even the financial management of, you know, of because the way I was going to do it is, once we hook you up with a friend, then you each pay, but handling the escrow of that and all the, I mean, it's a fun idea, but it's a logistical nightmare. So unfortunately, your only option is either buy something that fits the longer foot or the yeah. shorter one, whichever you care about, and then get two or get two pairs. It's funny. And well, then find a friend yourself. Well, <laughs> I I did one better than find a friend. I grew a friend. My my son is 16 and is up to here, and his feet are just shy of my smaller foot. So I think, so right now, whenever I get stuff that I like, and it's just a little too small. Boom. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> well, and, and that said, you know, one of the other things is that we do on our website say, you know, this shoe fits true to size. Um, we, it's kind of like people say when we, when anyone uses the term barefoot shoes, they go, that's an oxymoron. You're either barefoot or you're in shoes. I go, hey, I didn't invent the phrase. That's just what people search for. So I don't like the phrase true to size, but that's what people think. So we start there. It's just a place to start. Um, and then if we say, hey, this shoe runs a little short, you know, buy a half size bigger or runs a little long by, you know, we, we, and we modify those uh, recommendations based on the feedback that we're getting. We track returns and exchanges and we modify based on that. But it is one of those things where, again, humans think that, th that they're the normal one and everyone else needs to accommodate them. Foot, um, let's just call it comfort and fit, live on a bell curve spectrum. And our goal is to cover as much of that bell curve as possible, but there's just no way with one product to cover the whole curve and, and to be able to separate it out to cover, to cover the entire curve with multiple products means we would need three to four times the warehouse space we currently have for the smallest chunk of the audience. And, you know, when someone says, why don't you make a size 17? I go, cause you and your best friend would be the only two people buying it. Uh, so we're always pushing the boundaries of how can we accommodate more people, but it's a push me, pull you. We need to get bigger enough that there that we can order the minimum quantities in those larger sizes to accommodate that smaller group of people uh, that we're trying to be helpful. Now I will confess, 
we are making a custom-made version of a shoe that's very large for one person. Because he has an audience of rabid fans that's about 2 million people large, so, you know, it's a marketing expense. But but we literally can't make it for everyone yet. Actually, that's... I, you know, as someone who has a 3D printer and I just play around, what about just on demand and 3D? I know the technology is nowhere close. I've seen some of the new 3D printed shoes. It's like, but do you see yeah. that here? So, uh, so there's only certain kinds of materials you can 3D print. <clears throat> That's thing number one. And there, there are a couple of, boy, again, can of worms. Um, yeah. So. Adidas opened what they called the Speed Factory, which was all designed to make 3D printed midsoles, and they shut it down. Uh, it, too time consuming, too expensive. Plus, when when I was on that American College of Sports Medicine panel and someone said, you know, what's the future for you guys? The guys from Adidas said custom 3D printed insoles. The guys from Brooks said custom made outsoles because everyone's a unique little snowflake, uh, or at least we like to think so. And... Um, and I said, where's your proof that that's going to prove, improve performance or reduce injury, to which they had no response. So one of the other things that human be- problems human beings have is that we, if we can imagine something, we think it must be possible. And sometimes we imagine shit that just isn't possible. So to your point about 3D whatever, there was an, uh, another company that was, was pitching an idea of three, um, not even 3D printed, just you know, com- computer-controlled cutting out of a out of a template to get something you know we scan your foot we make something to match your foot i said where's the proof that that's more comfortable you think it's going to be more comfortable but that doesn't mean it will be again that extra space between your toes or just the way it moves or you know so um there's just lots of ideas about this uh, about the future of footwear that don't bear up to reality yet Maybe something's going to change, but fundamentally, footwear manufacturing hasn't really changed in a very long time, not because uh, it's slow to adopt new technology. It's not. It's because the new technology really doesn't add value and often detracts more often than one would think. Um, A variation on that. The whole green story is is huge now. We want recycled, recyclable. First of all, no one cares about recyclable. Recyclable is nonsense. No one ever does that. They just throw their stuff away. And then they're recycled or the, you know, we took water bottles out of the ocean or we used nothing but whale placenta to make the, you know, whatever they've come up with. Our green story is simple. We make our soles have a 5,000 mile sole warranty. Most shoe companies say replace your shoes every three to 500 miles. And even that is too long for many. The new maximalist shoes, some of them are saying replace them every hundred miles. Um, and we use fewer materials, which means fewer, less energy to make our stuff that lasts longer. Say so what? I'm sorry, 100 miles? Yeah, yeah. Like, I walked that yeah. in, like, that. that's not even a month. Yeah, but, you know, the shoe is only $200, so what's the big deal? Come on, you're rich. So, a mile is more um, expensive than my car, though. Just hey, you know, stop, stop, stop your whining. They made these shoes. They're, they're designed to improve performance and reduce injury. Didn't you hear me say that before? So... So, the, you know, like the, the water bottle thing is amazing. There are companies who are making water bottles so they can then recycle the water bottles they just made and claim they're recycled water bottles. I've spoken to the companies that do a lot of this recycled, eco, green, whatever stuff. And I said to the, the owners, I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but the net carbon effect is still negative, Right. It takes more energy to take these things, to reclaim them out of the ocean and then process them and turn them into something new than to start from scratch, correct? And they've all said yes. 
One company that I know of, a footwear brand, they pride themselves on being sustainable. And if you read the fine print, it talks about how sustainable they are, except they've excluded transportation and packaging, which is interesting because they make the materials for their shoes in one part of the world. They ship them to the other side of the world to have that turned into the upper for the shoe. They ship it back to the other side of the world to have that upper attached to uh, the, the sole of the shoe. And then they put it in a super expensive box. So, okay, you're, you're sustainable because you're using a material that grows repeatedly, but then you ship it all over the place to do these things that are not sustainable. What's the net sustainable effect? And, and the other thing, frankly, and this is not an excuse for it, is I was on a, another panel discussion at a trade show and these two shoe companies talking about how they're all about sustainability and they're going to change the world. I said, dude, the United States alone puts 400 million tons of plastic into the trash and oceans every year. You're going to sell a couple hundred thousand pairs of shoes. You're not making a dent. It's again, it's all greenwashing and making people feel good. So they can, I mean, they can feel virtuous. It's virtue signaling. And I, I said, the only time all this green stuff is going to be valuable is when none of you assholes can use it for marketing when it's just ubiquitous, when everyone's using it because it is producing demonstrable net benefits. And when people say, well, you know, we have to start somewhere to get there, you're not making a big difference. Go to the people who are making a big difference, get them, and you're not going to be putting pressure on them because the financial pressures when you're a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar company are a very different story than when you're a $50 million company or a $100 million company. So again, it's all about the truth. And unfortunately, the truth is complex and people want simple stories. And I hope that we get to the point where we have simple stories that are also true, that are also beneficial. And that's, um, you know, that's a big project. Steven, it was wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to pick up a couple of pairs of your shoes. You can connect with Steven and learn more about Zero Shoes and down in the show notes. If you want to learn more about me, AJ, or the show Beyond 8 Figures, check out our social media and sign up for the Beyond 8 Figures newsletter, where we share all the juicy bits. All the links are available in the show notes. So thank you again for listening, and I can't wait to talk to you again. Have a wonderful day. This episode of Beyond 8 Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.